Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Today, we finish up the last of a series that we've been in since really around the the middle of May, uh, a series called Dealing with Feelings. How do we keep our emotions in check and under control? I am so excited about today's subject, and I want to ask you to turn with me to the 32nd Psalm, Psalm 32. We're going to deal with the issue of guilt today. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you may remember him as the author of the famed Sherlock Holmes series of books. He decided, he's a rather mischievous guy apparently in real life, and and he made a decision once he was going to play a horrible joke on 12 of his friends, and so he simultaneously had telegrams sent to all 12 of them with the following words, flee at once, all has been discovered. Well, it turned out not to be so funny to his buddies because 24 hours later, all 12 of them were trying to get out of the country. So something was underneath that they were afraid was going to be discovered. Uh, What if that happened to you? That's the question I want to ask. What if someone sent you, it wouldn't be a telegram today, it'd be a text message, it'd be a private message on Parler or Facebook or something else, but if they sent you a message like that and they said, everything that you thought was a secret is about to be known, what would your response be to that? Are you hiding anything? Because I've discovered that most of the time when we hide things, within that suitcase is also something called guilt. This feeling that has hounded us, this feeling that won't seem to let us go, this feeling that's hard to live with, it's a feeling that assaults us at the most inopportune times. We may think we're doing okay, and then all of a sudden, something will happen. A memory will occur. We'll be triggered. We'll go right back to that moment, and we will struggle once again with this emotion of guilt. Carl, Carl Menninger, the famed psychiatrist, I've referenced him a couple of times in this series together, said the following about a generation ago. He said, if I could convince all of my psychiatrists Pediatric patients, the ones that are institutionalized, if I could convince every one of them of the simple fact that their sins have been forgiven, 75% of them could walk out of the hospital today. Now, if that's true, that should say something to us about how powerful is this emotion of guilt. And the truth is, if you're old enough to know right from wrong, you felt guilty at some point. I mean, unless you're just a sociopath, you felt guilty at one point in your life. Sometimes it's because you were guilty. It's because you did something that was worthy of those feelings. And today, some of you may feel guilty because you are guilty. Sometimes it's because there's something that you didn't do wrong, but someone's convinced you that you did, or something that's already been settled and made right, but it keeps coming back to you. But for whatever reason, there's that feeling of guilt. And we have to recognize that that emotion is tied to actual guilt. Uh, The book of James puts it this way in James chapter 2, for whoever keeps the whole law but but fails in one point, that'd be all of us, has become guilty of all of it. You know what that means? No matter how good you may seem to be, how much of a great front you can 
put up, how together your life seems to be you and me. We have fallen short of God's holy standard that he has for us as human beings created in his image. That guilt is real and it has to be dealt with. But the good news is it can be dealt with. God's given us a way that, that we don't have to live our lives haunted by guilt. And as we look at, at Psalm 32 this morning, I want you to think about an x-ray. I want you to think about an MRI scan that, that goes up against the light on a wall. Some of you have been cancer patients, and you've seen the cancer in a certain part of the body, and you've seen it up against that light on the wall, and then you went through the treatments, and then you had the joy of going back to that same doctor's office and seeing that x-ray placed back up against that light and seeing that, it, that, that what was making you sick, that disease that you had that would have otherwise killed you, it's not there anymore. It's been treated, and now it's gone. I want you to think about that picture, because as we look at Psalm 32, we're looking at a clean x-ray of a man's soul who's dealt with his guilt. King David had gotten into a lot of stuff. I don't know how familiar everyone is. I'm sure we're all at different points in terms of our knowledge of Scripture. But let me tell you a few things about David, just in case you may have this attitude that I don't know that God could ever forgive me for the things that I've done. I've talked to so many people over the years that have said, Pastor, I'm embarrassed to even open up to you and tell you what I've done. I think most of them don't realize I've heard a lot of these stories before. After 28 years, there's really hardly anything you could tell me that would surprise me or shock me. And I've told folks before, for you think of the weirdest, most jacked up soap opera you have ever watched in your life. Something more weird than that has walked through my door. I can guarantee it. But people feel embarrassed. People feel ashamed. Well, let me tell you something about David. Let me tell you what David was guilty of. All of the following. He lusted after a married woman. He slept with her. He got her pregnant. And then he had her husband murdered to cover it all up. Now, even if you have done something that bad, when you look at a clean x-ray that we find in Psalm 32, hopefully it'll give you some hope here. David lived with that guilt for a while until the prophet Nathan finally confronted him, was bold enough to confront the king. The result of that confrontation is actually another psalm. You can read that today. I would encourage you to do that. Psalm 51, that contains David's heartfelt gut-wrenching confession of his sin. In other words, David felt guilty because he was guilty. And you don't get rid of feelings by denying the actual guilt. See, the issue is we've fallen for the two polar opposite responses that our world and our culture has told us are appropriate when it comes to guilt. One is to deny it. And say, well, just it, not working. It's, it's almost like we're the perpetual eight-year-old thinking the monster won't see me if I throw the sheet over my head. We think if I just suppress it down far enough, God won't see it, which is hilarious. But that's what we think. We'll just deny it. We'll suppress it down. We'll pretend like it didn't happen. The other extreme is wallow in it. Don't ever let it go. You just keep feeling guilty. You, you can even feel guilty for things you haven't even done. All right? And our world throws both of those out as solutions for the feelings of guilt. And then to make it even more confusing, the solution they throw at you, either deny it, act like it never happened, or wallow in it and never get over it, really depends upon how popular the issue is these days. Have you noticed that? That's how our culture treats this issue. 
Culture sets us up for gaslighting each other. And you know what happens at the end of the day? We do nothing to actually solve the problem of guilt. I want to tell you this morning, God Almighty has a solution to your guilt and to mine. He does not intend for you to live haunted for the rest of your life by guilt. And I want you to see, as we look at Psalm 32, how do you deal with guilt once and for all? But I want to warn you, it's not an easy path because it starts by, by doing something that, again, our culture is not programmed to automatically do. You have to admit your fault. David's guilt got worse when he tried to hide it. Notice verse 3 of Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He said all this happened. When I kept silent, it just got worse. There's an old saying, the air is human. I want to tell you something this morning. It's also human to be quiet about it, isn't it? It's also human to try to press it down, to suppress it, to try to look good to everybody else. This natural tendency to cover it up, to defend it, to redirect the conversation, to gaslight another person, to blame shift. We're going to see this in spades come November, just, just so you know. And if you know, which candidate are you talking about? Both of them. I can't remember for three election cycles when I've ever heard a politician for elective office say three words, I was wrong. Three more words, I am sorry. I'm, gonna I'm at the point right now as a voter, you give me a candidate that says those things, I'll vote for them. I'm there. Because at least I'll be dealing with someone with the humility who has the capacity to lead. But before we get too deeply into that, let's remember we're in a democracy. Our leaders are a reflection of us, aren't they? They're a reflection of who we are. We do not want to say, I was wrong. I am sorry. We want to redirect. We want to redirect. Because when it comes to sin, normally, in accordance with our own nature, we do one of two things. We either rationalize it on the one hand. Well, I had to do it. I had to do that. You don't understand. I mean, if I didn't do this, this would have happened. That would have happened. I, I had to do that wrong thing. Everybody's doing it. This is the only way. Or we blame shift. We don't like the three words, I am sorry, do we? We don't like the three words, I was wrong. But I'm going to tell you, there are three words this culture loves. Not my fault. We love that. And as long as we refuse to own up to the responsibility which is really ours, we're going to struggle with guilt until we die. We live in a no-fault society that's tried to convince us otherwise. We have no-fault divorce. We have no-fault accidents. And when we do something that brings on guilt, we tend to try to suppress it rather than directly address what's causing the guilt in the first place, which is another way of saying in our culture, you and I are conditioned when we start to feel guilty to think that the problem is that we feel guilty. The problem is the emotion. The problem is the feeling. Some of you may remember the, the name Ann Landers. For 50 years, she wrote an advice column for the Chicago Sun-Times, and she addressed guilt in one of those columns, and she said the following. It's one of the most painful, self-mutilating, time- and energy-consuming ex exercises in the human experience. And then she said this, remember that guilt is a pollutant, and we don't need any more of it in the world. Did you hear what I just heard? Did you hear a woman say, 
the conventional wisdom for two generations in the United States is that when you do something bad, the answer to that is to keep yourself from feeling bad because the problem is the feeling. You don't need to feel. We've got too much feeling of guilt. If Ann Landers was still around today, I'd love to ask her a question. If I'm not supposed to feel bad when I've actually done something wrong, exactly when am I supposed to feel bad? Am I ever supposed to feel bad? See, this is our number one problem. We will not admit that guilt is so often a self-induced emotion, and this may be one of the greatest temptations of our age, is to turn sin into an illness, into something we can't help, into something that's somebody else's problem. Now, I, I want you to hear me carefully, all right? I want to be very, very careful here because we have learned a lot that we don't need to unlearn over the last several decades as a society. We've learned a lot about things from brain science to conditioned social behaviors. There are, there are some areas, particularly around addiction, where the helping professions can be a huge blessing to us. For example, we know that alcoholism can rightly be called a brain disease, a disease of the brain. Same thing with pornography addiction, same thing with the opioid crisis that we've been dealing with and that we've seen a, a spike in since all of this COVID stuff has had us trapped at, at home. Um, and so I, I don't want to take away from that. It helps us actually to understand the why. It helps us to address and help people get through the issue. It helps those of us who minister to them to do it more compassionately. But here's what I do want to be abundantly clear on, because the temptation as we start to understand more about what causes certain behaviors is to remove certain modifiers from describing those behaviors. In other words, to remove the term sin from any of this. Alcoholism is a disease. But every single alcoholic I ever met in my entire life chose to drink. At least the first time. We don't want to remove that. To, to just assume, well, Pastor, the problem is not that I'm sinful. It's that I'm sick. The problem is not that I'm wicked. I'm just weak. That is not what the word of the Lord says about us. And when we begin to use these sorts of rationalizations, you know what we do? We make our guilt worse, not better. When we refuse to own up to the parts of our lives that are solely our responsibility. Look at verse 3 again of Psalm 32. David says, For when I kept silent, my bones were wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, he's talking to the Lord, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. This is how I feel, he says. I'm physically worn out. I can't function. I've lost all my energy. People today, ulcers, migraines, loss of appetite. Guilt is bringing them to ruin. But I'm going to tell you something that's more dangerous than the feeling of guilt. It is when you still are in the wrong and you feel nothing. That's actually a more dangerous thing because that's the sign of a seared conscience. That's the sign that the Lord has given you over after the pattern of what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, and you're going down a path that's going to result in a heart that is so hardened that you no longer have any empathy, no remorse, no sense of responsibility, no care or concern for people you have hurt or for those that you may be currently manipulating. If that's you and you haven't dealt with your guilt, you've just completed the journey toward a completely completely 
hardened heart. And it's possible, at least according to what the Scriptures teach, that the judgment of God in all of its fury awaits you on the other side of eternity. It's more dangerous to not feel anything. And so here's the hard lesson. David was miserable because God wanted David miserable in this moment. He doesn't want him to stay that way. He doesn't want him to wallow in it. He doesn't want him to deny it either because that will lead to something far, far worse. Far worse. God sometimes wants us to feel the sickness of our sin. You know, even in the medical realm, our, our culture has got, gotten to a place, this is part of what actually prompted the, the whole opioid epidemic uh, that still uh, we struggle with today, is it became the highest value in medical science for so many decades became take the pain away. And that led to overuse of legitimate prescribed medicines, which then you can't, you, you get addicted to them, you can't get off of them. The doctor cuts you off. You go looking for them on the black market. They're expensive. You find a cheap substitute. You just have to use a needle to put it in there. And off to the races we go. Every bit of that started with the assumption that the highest value for the patient is to remove the pain. Medical science knows better than that now. But you know who doesn't? A lot of Christians. We think... It's about taking the pain. I don't want to feel this way anymore. And so you assume it's the feeling. And so then you take the world's prescription for taking care of this feeling. I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I have to wonder sometimes if that's not the reason in the midst of some of the hardship that we're dealing with right now as a nation that so many Christians are being such babies right now. I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to, I want everything to get back to normal. I want this. I want that. I wonder if there's some of that. You get angry with me if you want to, or you can just, maybe I, I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm asking what I think is a legitimate question here. Could some of that buried deep down be the assumption that the highest value for me is living a pain-free life? An inconvenience-free life. Life. Some of our ancestors actually lived through things like the Great Depression and the World War II might be laughing at us right now. This will make it worse, not better. And sometimes God wants us to feel the sickness without anesthesia so that we will actually admit, because when a saved person sins against God, that person will never be happy until they deal with their sin. You say, Pastor, it doesn't bother me. Then you're lost. Yeah. Don't you judge me. I'm not saying anything about you that the Word of God hadn't already said about you. If you can do this with a seared conscience and not feel anything, you are on your way to hell. And it is time to repent and come to Jesus. Anybody in this room, anybody on the other side of this camera, as one black preacher friend of mine used to say, God don't whip you if you ain't his youngin'. If you're not feeling the effects of it, you may not belong to him. Step number one, dealing with guilt, admit a very simple fact. I feel guilty because I am. Admit 
your fault. And then secondly, acknowledge your failure. Because see, even though we're all guilty, that guilt doesn't have to be terminal. Look again at verse 5. David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now notice verse 4. Night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. I'm coming clean with what I've done, and, and, I've, and I'm doing it as a response to what the conviction of God through his Holy Spirit has brought into my life. And Jesus reminds us of this again in the New Testament in John chapter 16. He says the Holy Spirit's going to come, but, but unlike the way he did it with David in the Old Testament where he would just sort of show up sporadically and occasionally, he's going to now take up permanent residence in the hearts of his people, the church, and priority number one on the Holy Spirit's agenda. You know what it is? He will convict the world of sin. That's what he will do. He will convict the world of sin through the Holy Spirit. And he was doing that, even during the time of David. And this is where we get confused. We may think, if God doesn't want me to feel guilty, why does he send the Holy Spirit to increase that feeling? Why would he do that? And moreover, you might be asking this, well, doesn't the Bible also teach that Satan brings guilt that I ought to resist? It does, and you should. That's absolutely true. So if Satan riddles me with guilt to paralyze me, how do I know the difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the work of Satan to simply leave me trapped in my guilt? Well, in, at least partially in this way. When Satan brings guilt, he accuses you as an individual. When the Holy Spirit points out your guilt, he's pointing to the sin. Satan accuses, the Holy Spirit convicts. Satan uses guilt to destroy you. The Holy Spirit's purpose in guilt is to sanctify you. Satan uses guilt like a hammer to destroy your life. The Holy Spirit uses guilt like a surgeon uses a scalpel to cut a deadly disease out of you and to give you the very kind of abundant life that Jesus says you can have in John chapter 10. If he's done that, you don't have any more guilt. So there's no reason for you to feel guilty. You know, in this country, we have a law. It's based on the Fifth Amendment. It's called double jeopardy. It says quite simply this, that you cannot be tried for a crime if you've already been tried for it once and been found innocent. If you've been acquitted for it, then you're innocent. So there's a spiritual double jeopardy law also. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. The Holy Spirit doesn't dig up old dirt. He doesn't do that. Satan will keep bringing up to you what God has already forgiven. The Holy Spirit only confronts you with what has not yet been dealt with as it should be. Okay? Now, think about how that contrasts again with the two polar opposite prescriptions that our world gives us. Denying guilt, okay, which is what sometimes people get into it deep. They do some horrible things. They have not made things right, but they think, well, I just... I confessed it to the Lord, I asked him to forgive me, so I'm forgiven and I don't need to keep going back to that. And, and when you keep bringing back the fact that, well, there are things in your life right now that keep holding you back like ankle weights on a guy trying to run a marathon because you haven't really dealt with this, their response is, well, now you're just trying to open up an old wound. Now you're just trying to dig up old dirt. No, we're trying to help you go back. You know when it's right to open up an old wound? When it's gangrenous. You got gangrene in that leg, you know what you do? You pull out a knife and you cut that sucker back open because it wasn't dealt with rightly. 
And so the Holy Spirit, when I say he doesn't dig up old dirt, I don't mean you can just have gangrene in your leg and be fine. What I mean is if it's been dealt with in the way that God approves and the Lord says, all right, we're good here. And you have done everything you can to make things right. Then you don't have anything to hide anymore. You notice that here? David says, I don't, I don't have anything to hide. I got no more pride to try to guard. I have no more false impressions to try to protect or project. I'm free. You send me a text message if, if you want to and say, all is about to be discovered. Listen, I don't care. Everybody already knows everything about me anyway. And the Lord has, knows this. I don't have to hide anything any longer. You ever had somebody stop by your house unannounced? And the house was a mess. Some of you may not care. I'm married to a woman who cares. All right. And um, early in our ministry, we were in a parsonage in a small church, and there was my house and the driveway and the church building. So we had a lot more people back then that would just sort of drop by. We didn't mind it. Neither one of us minded it. We loved our people, loved to see them, visit with them, pray with them. But sometimes you wouldn't get even five minutes notice. You'd be coming over. And we had a little baby at the time. Sam was an infant. You remember what it's like having a baby in the house? All right. There is no floor space after that happens, right? It just doesn't. And, and we discovered all manner of hiding places. You ever done that in your home? Shove it in the closet, shove it in the fridge. You know, the microwave, by the way, just some advice here, the microwave is an excellent place to hide dirty laundry. I'm just throwing that out there. You're like, isn't that kind of dead? No, it's, it, it'll nuke everything. It'll be fine. It's clean. It's good. You ever try to do that? And we tend to think emotionally like that too. If we could just hide it, you can't hide that stuff from the Lord. You can't cover up enough that he won't find it. Let me tell you, right now, right where you sit, he sees everything. He knows everything. You've just got one option. You, you're just going to have to come clean. But you know what the great thing is about coming clean before God? He'll honor that acknowledgement. He will honor that acknowledgement. If you don't believe me, just read the Gospels. Jesus saved his harshest, most condemning words for religious people that were trying to cover everything up, that were trying to act like somebody they were not. Never one single solitary time did the Lord Jesus Christ ever turn away or act with any condemnation toward any sincere sinner who bowed before him and said to him, you're all I've got. His arms were wide open for people like that. The difference is whether they were willing to confess. Notice verse 5, I said, David, David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Now, let's talk a little bit about what that word really means. Because we tend to think of it in a legal sense, don't we? All right? You commit a crime, the police catch you, your, your, your hands are behind your back, you're sitting in a, chair, in a chair, metal table in front of you, dude with an out-of-place necktie and a donut, spotlight on you. What are they trying to get you to do? They're trying to get you to confess they're not trying to get you to feel sorry for what you did. They're not trying to get you to express remorse. They have a case to solve. And your confession is the only thing standing between them and the moving of you and that whole case on to the prosecutor. The prosecutor, furthermore, has 
a case to win in a court of law. Confession is simply saying, yeah, I did that. And it's the most reductionistic view of what confession is, which we do not need to import into Christian thought and that think that confession just simply means, yeah, I just need to admit that I did that. I'm not necessarily sorry for it, but I, I, yeah, yeah, I did that. Lord, forgive me. This is how we get into just utter stupidity, like, well, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to ask God to forgive me, and then it'll be okay. It's a reductionistic view of confession. When our forebears first translated the Old Testament into the Greek language, a translation called the Septuagint, the word they used for this Hebrew word confession, you know what it is? It's homo logeo. You know what that means? Same speech. That's what, that's what it means. When I confess, here's what I'm doing. I am saying about my sin and about my wrong the same thing that God says about it. I am furthermore feeling in my soul the same thing that God feels about it. God knows that was a rotten, sinful inexcusable thing to do and I will confess that before him and I will show proper contrition before it because here's the truth of the matter brothers and sisters right now you are in one of two places you are either on sin's side against God or you're on God's side against sin there ain't no fence to ride here you are going to have to pick a side and if you want freedom from guilt you just got to come clean acknowledge your failure admit your fault now if you can get there this last part, it would seem to be the easiest thing in the world, but for some people, it's the hardest thing in the world. If you have dealt with your sin rightly, don't de- you didn't deny it. You dealt with it rightly. You, de- you did the best you could to make things right. You've confessed it. The Lord has forgiven you. Here's the thing, he, the other extreme, he doesn't want you doing. He doesn't want you wallowing in it. And so here's the, here's the end result. Accept your forgiveness. Let's go back to the beginning. Psalm 32, verse 1. Notice how this begins. I mentioned in all likelihood this is written sometime after David wrote the 51st Psalm. All right, if you read Psalm 51 this afternoon, it's a lot more visceral. It's a lot more painful to read through that. But what he's doing in these first two verses is he's looking back on that moment in a very different way. And the first word he uses is the word blessed or blessed. We have a series coming up this fall right after our prayer series called hashtag blessed. It's amazing. You get a new car, you get married, you get a new relationship, you have a new baby, you get a promotion at work, you put it on social media, and nine times out of ten if you're a Christian, you put hashtag blessed right next to it. Did you know blessed has absolutely nothing to do with any of that? Did you know that for decades we have confused the goodness of God with the blessing of God? And the, the, reason for that, or the reasons for that are many, but the result of that is that we don't know that no matter what's going on, no matter what our circumstances are, that we can live in the blessing of God. We're going to talk about what that means. We're going to move through the Beatitudes together in the fall. But, but notice this word. Here it is. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. How can a man 
like this. I'm talking a man found guilty of adultery, murder, and the abuse of power. How does that guy find blessedness? Because you know what blessedness is at the end of the day? It's the approval of God. The goodness of God means sometimes you get some earthly gifts, you get some things. The blessing of God means you have his approval. There's no amount of money required in your wallet to have God's approval. There's no amount of physical health that's required on your part to have the approval of God. You have the approval of God. How does David get the approval of God? Well, let's look. First off, because his sin's been cleared. He says, my transgression has been forgiven. The word picture here is someone who's pulled a heavy, unbearable weight off of me. In Psalm 103, we read the following as a promise to us. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I think there's some great providence in those Holy Spirit-inspired words that chose east and west rather than north and south. You know why? Because I've been on intercontinental flights to Asia and almost every single one of them took me over the North Pole. So I started going north, but only half of my journey was north. And even though I kept going in the same direction, once I got to the pole, which way did I start going? South. But you know what? If you go east, there is never a point at which you start going west. Never. God said, that's how far I will separate your sin and your guilt from you. You don't need to feel it anymore because you'll never have it again. I'll take it away. David has the, a murderer, an adulterer, has the approval of this God because his slate has been wiped clean. How in the world did that happen? Well, look at verse 2. His sin was covered. The Lord counts no iniquity. One older preacher said, if you try to cover your sins... God will blow the cover off of it. He'll uncover it. But conversely, if you'll uncover your sins, just lay them bare, God will cover them. Jesus said nothing is hidden that will not be revealed. But your sin can be covered today. Now, here's the big question. How does that happen? Does he just sweep it under the rug? Does he cover it up? What happens? Some of my dearest friends who are even leaders in other religious movements, some of my Muslim friends, my Jewish friends, my Buddhist friends, um, and if any of you are listening right now, man, I've missed seeing you guys because I know you live in different parts of the country. We haven't been able to see each other. Can't wait to see you again. But this is one of those areas where I would tell you when we talk about the differences between Christian faith and other forms of, of religious teaching, one of the things that sets Christian faith apart and one of the things that I would just humbly challenge you to consider is that there's no clear answer in any other faith tradition of how God actually deals with our sin until you get to Christianity. How does he deal with it? He absorbed it. He absorbs it. His sin is canceled. He counts no iniquity. You may have a translation that uses the word impute. It's actually an accounting term. So if you're an accountant, you understand that the balance sheet has to balance at the end, right? Profit and loss. You have to account for everything. Here at Covenant, over the next month or so, uh, we're about to have an external review by an accounting firm to make sure everything is in order, that we're doing everything transparently and the way we should, according to best accounting practices. That will be preceded by an internal, very minute look, an, an audit by our own finance team. That's one of those points where they could just pull a receipt at random and go, what was this for? 
Why is that? Because we want to be transparent, we want to be accountable, and because we need to know and be able to account for every penny. In the spiritual realm, the same thing is true with your sins and mine. God can't just sweep that under the rug. It's still there if he does that. So how does he deal with our sin? I want to read you a passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. The best news you're going to hear in your life, listen to this, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Speaking in accounting terms, you know what that means? That means God took my bankrupt, not just bankrupt, in the hole, bleeding red ink with no hope of ever being able to come out, and he canceled out that debt by imputing to it the unlimited righteousness of Jesus and then took my sin and put them on Jesus. Martin Luther would call this the great exchange. God doesn't sweep anything under the rug. God will not compromise his holiness. God punished your sin with all of the fury and the wrath that was due it when his own son willingly said, I will go to the earth and I will bear it on the cross. And God covered David's sin based upon what the son of David would do 1,000 years later. And 2,000 years after that, God covers your sin. He covers my sin by charging our debt to the account of Jesus who pays it in full. I've got good news today. When God cleans your slate and covers your sin, he does more than simply give you the opportunity to be free from the feeling of guilt. He obliterates the actual guilt that caused those feelings in the first place. You can be free today. You can be free. Problem is, some people just don't accept this. Over and over and over, you ask forgiveness God is forgiven, Satan throws it back in your face, and you run to God all over again. If you've admitted your fault, you've acknowledged your failure, you've made things right, you have asked forgiveness, don't call God a liar by running back to him over and over again for something he dealt with 2,000 years before you were born in the cross of Christ. Accept it. Thank him for it. Rejoice over it. Walk out of here today. Turn that television off and go out and live free, maybe for the first time, in your life life. Now, does that mean you'll be free of all the earthly consequences of whatever you've done? No, that's not really what that means at all. You may be an alcoholic who's already reached the point where you've pickled your own liver. Now, God could, in addition to forgiving you of your sins, choose to heal you miraculously. He might also choose to have you live with the consequences of that for the rest of your life. If you're guilty of assault, sexual abuse, can God forgive? Absolutely. But the removal of that guilt isn't necessarily the same as the removal of the earthly consequences. I've, I've spoken with many, a hardened criminal who says, how could God ever forgive me? How will you all ever love me? And I have said many, many times, I got no problem serving you communion on the other side of prison bars. None whatsoever. You might still have a price to pay temporarily in this world. This is not about getting over that. In fact, God didn't ultimately create you for this life anyway. I've discovered that truly forgiven people, I've dealt with people who said, God forgave me for that, and I don't know why. I mean, perpetrators of assault. I don't know why I keep bringing that up. God's forgiven me that. How, how much longer am I going to have to live with this? That, that's not the tone, nor are those the words of a forgiven person. Forgiven people, 
genuinely set free from guilt, they're like Zacchaeus, who Jesus found, took him to back, Zacchaeus took him back, hosted him at home. He came to faith in Christ. What's the first thing he does? Man, I've cheated a lot of people. I got to make things right. And he didn't do that out of a sense of guilt. He did that be precisely because his guilt had been removed. Isn't it amazing what just simply the removal of guilt would do for our relationships, even with each other? That's what I've found about truly forgiven people. They're not only willing to live with some temporary consequences of their sin if, they, if that's called for, but they're happy to use that even as a part of their story of God's magnificent grace in their lives. The primary issue is guilt. And some of you may want desperately to be relieved from that. You know, there's an old saying, nothing is ever settled until it's settled right, and nothing is ever settled right until it's settled with God. That ultimately is the thing that has to be reconciled with you, with me. But here's the good news. If you're lost and you need grace, there is a man named Jesus who lived the life you should have lived, who died the death that you should have died, paid the debt you and I owed. And you can have grace through that great exchange. And tonight might be the best night's sleep you ever got in your life because for the first time, you go to bed with a clear conscience knowing my sins are forgiven. No more guilt. No more guilt. Therefore, no more guilty feeling. I'm going to live free. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray today that you would, through the person of your Holy Spirit, do what Jesus promised in John chapter 16, that you would convict the world of sin, that it would start right here in this own preacher's heart, that it would move to the people that are gathered in front of me right now, to the folks on the other side of that camera. And Father, there are those who have been denying guilt for years. I pray that they would be willing to take the painful road of owning up to the things that are, in fact, their fault. God, give us more people like that. It's the only thing that's going to save this God-forsaken culture we live in right now. And Father, would we please be, just have that, that willingness to move forward through that. For those who continue to wallow in something they've already been forgiven of, Lord, may they have the grace to embrace and accept the full and free pardon that you provide, knowing that that debt's been wiped out. They're never going to see that red inked balance sheet ever again because of Jesus. Father, would you save some people today? And Lord, would you give us the opportunity to walk with them, not only through that experience, but through the experience of continuing to walk in that grace, to be empowered. And I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.